Hey, thank you for listening to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. We pray that as you listen to the following message today, that it will encourage you to continue to connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and with others. It's so good to be with you and to have an opportunity to speak to brothers and sisters in Christ and to say to you, thank you, thank you, thank you for your faithfulness to hold the ropes for your missionaries wherever they serve. You pray for your missionaries, you you give of your financial resources so that people like us in Africa can devote all of our time to sharing the good news of Jesus Christ and not to have to come home every six months and try to raise our money. So Palmetto Baptist Church, you have been faithful to give and to pray. And I also know that you've been faithful to go. I think you're involved in Haiti and you're serving Jesus there as missionaries in other parts of the world. I want to thank you for sending some of your very best to work alongside of us, uh, though at the time you weren't here, but they came here, and that's Jason and Michelle McDaniel. They're like our children. We love them dearly. What you may not know about the McDaniels is that they were part of a pioneer project that the International Mission Board did where our vision was to come alongside South African Baptist and Methodist and Assemblies of God and other evangelical churches in carrying the good news into post-apartheid South Africa. We were working with students ages 15 to 24, 25, And it was the belief of our South African student leaders that if we could go hand in hand from every nation, every language group, hand in hand, walking into the land where oppression had been known, where apartheid had enslaved the people, and we could share the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, not just with our words, but with our unity together in Christ. Jason and Michelle were part of that from the beginning and are still loved by South Africans dearly. And we're so glad to be with you today and thank you for making these ministries possible. Now, church, this morning, I have a message that I really believe God wants to speak into your hearts. It's not a typical three points and a point, though there's nothing wrong with that. But I believe God wants to take his word this morning, not just about missions in Africa, but I believe he wants to speak to you on the mission that he has placed you on. We all have a story. I only wish this morning we had time to hear your story. But I want to encourage you, and, and, and better still, your father wants to encourage you where you are in whatever circumstances you find yourself in to know that he's faithful. 
You know, as followers of Jesus Christ, history is not so much just a collection of data and facts and experiences that we have. It is that, but it's much more. It's His story lived out in your life and in my life. Coming here today, Lynn and I were praying, God, would you use our time together to speak into the stories of everyone in this great congregation to encourage them to be the men and women and young people that God has called them to be. I want us to take our Bibles this morning Our biblical background is 1 Samuel chapter 7, the first 13 verses. Now I want us to look at this together. And I want us to first look at what God was doing in his story there. And see if God might not apply his word to you. Could we have a prayer together? Our Father and our God, you are a great, merciful, gracious Father. And you meet us where we are in our brokenness, in our disobedience and rebellion. You meet us there. And you wrap your arms of love and grace around us. And you teach us and you lead us where you want us to be. Would you speak your truth into our hearts and lives today, Lord? In Jesus' name, amen. Would you follow as I read from God's word? And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and they took up the ark of the Lord and they brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill and they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. Perhaps a little background might be helpful here. Do you remember the ark of the covenant? maybe in your Sunday school uh, lessons. If nothing else, if you watch some of the reruns of Indiana Jones, you learned a little bit about this magical ark, didn't you? But in God's word, we learn that the ark of the covenant was a box that had been covered in gold with angels over the top of it with their wings touching. The ark of the covenant had been designed by God himself to house the Ten Commandments, the Bible, if you please, at that time. It also housed a plate of manna. Do you remember how God fed the children of Israel in the wilderness as he rained down his manna? It also had the rod of Aaron. Aaron, Moses' right-hand man that God used to demonstrate his power. And so the Ark of the Covenant, as we come to 1 Samuel chapter 7, 
we, we know that the Ark of the Covenant was to be housed in the tabernacle of God. But not just in that mobile tent, but there was a place called the Holy of Holies. The priest and only the priest could enter that Ark of uh, that tent in that Holy of Holies as he would pray for the sins of the people of Israel over the Ark of the Covenant. But as we come to this first verse, and especially to verse 2, we learn something very significant. We learn that the Ark had been removed from the tabernacle by the evil sons of Eli the priest, uh, Phineas and Hopni, they had taken that Ark of the Covenant out and they had desecrated uh, the Holy, Holy Ark. In fact, the spiritual condition of the people of Israel at this time was such that the Israelites began to look at the Ark of the Covenant as being all-powerful. In fact, more powerful than the God it represented. So it had been removed from that tabernacle. And we, we see in, look at verse 2 with me. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time had passed some 20 years, and all of the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Now, church, don't miss this picture. <clears throat> For 20 years, the Ark of the Covenant, that holy, holy symbol of God in his presence, had been taken away and put up like an old box in the attic, never to be seen again. And the people of Israel were afraid. They were scared. They, did, they thought that God had abandoned them and God had left them. So Samuel calls the people to action and he reminds them that they have sinned against God. Do you remember your Old Testament history? God was the God over his people that he had called. He said to Abraham in the covenant, he said, I will be your God and you will be my special separated people. And if you will follow me and keep my commandments and walk in my ways, I will be your God, and the nations of the world will know it. And we know that Israel decided that God was not enough. You know, church, whenever we decide that we've got to have God and something else, we're in trouble. So Israel says, we want a king like all of these other nations in the land. And so they'd been given a king. And we find in 1 Samuel the report of the first king, Saul, that turned out not to be a man after God's heart. We see in 1 Samuel 
how Israel turned from being that theocracy to be living under a monarchy. We see in 1 Samuel the desperate strait that the people were in. Verse 3, And Samuel said to the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all of your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. You see, Israel had been in perpetual warfare with the Philistines. There were great numbers of lives being lost. Verse 4, so the people of Israel put away the bells and the Ashtoreth, and they served the Lord only. Verse 5, then Samuel said, gather all of Israel at Mitzpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mitzpah, and they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mitzpah. Now, when the, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered in Mitzpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hands of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering. And the Lord heard the prayer. And Samuel cried to him, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mitzpah, and they pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Car. Then church, look at verse 12. This, is, this constitutes our text this morning. Then Samuel took a stone and he set it up at Mitzpah, between Mitzpah and Shen, and he called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. May God bless his reading this morning. Church, I want to ask a question this morning of you. What is an Ebenezer? 
That's not a term that we use in everyday life. Students, do you use the word Ebenezer at school? Not really. If you hadn't already read this story, if you didn't know it, or if you didn't know a little bit about Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol and that mythical character, Ebenezer who? Scrooge. And you probably did not know this name. I challenge you uh, parents-to-be to go to a baby book and find one place where you'll find the suggestion to name your son Ebenezer. It's not there. But I want to suggest to you it's a good name. It's a name that we all need to be acquainted with. Let me give you a simple definition. And I want to challenge you this morning to be looking intently, seriously, prayerfully looking for your Ebenezer. An Ebenezer is, is this, spiritually speaking. It is a spiritual marker that you can look back on and remember the goodness and the faithfulness of God. You got that church. It is a physical, spiritual marker that you look at and know that you've got a good God that is still in control. Do you know what I believe this morning, church? <clears throat> if we could somehow, right now, be teleported back in time to around the year 1100 B.C. And if we could be walking down that road between Mitzpah and Shin, and if we were to come upon this large rock by the road with the Hebrew writing with the name Ebenezer, and furthermore, if we were to ask the people walking by, what is an Ebenezer? Do you know what they would tell us? They would begin to tell us a wonderful story of a good, good father, of a great and mighty God who in their rebellion, in their disobedience, in their brokenness in rejecting him, he delivered them out of the hands of the Philistines. But they would go on to tell you, but there was something greater that he did. He delivered us from our brokenness, from our rebellion, and he saved us from himself, from ourselves. Several years ago, where we live in, lived in South Africa, Lynn and I said, you know what? We want to start looking for an Ebenezer. We knew that in three or four years, we would be coming back to America. And we wanted to be able to have an Ebenezer that we could use in sharing with others the goodness of God. Now, there's a cultural practice that some South Africans do that we Western people think is a little bit weird, but it's really pretty cool. They name 
their house, or they name the plot of land where their house stands. Lynn and I enjoy walking together, and we would walk together most every evening in our neighborhood, and we would read the signs. I mean, these signs are right on the front of the house. You would see one that might say, Op de Hook, which means the house on the corner. Or you might see another one that would say, uh, the under haste, which simply means it's the other house. Or you might find one that says, Tani's uh, Bui Tain, which means Tani's beautiful garden. So we really like that. What could we name our house in Nashville, Tennessee? And we didn't even have a house yet, Pastor. But we wanted a name that people would say, what is this? And we could tell them about the goodness of God. We walked and we looked and we couldn't find anything that we thought God would use. We were in a worship service one morning and the young pastor, Jason, about your age, was speaking. And he was telling us an illustration about how he had always longed to have a Mercedes. He said, confessionally, I think I probably lusted after a Mercedes. One day he was sitting at a traffic light, and as he looked across the intersection, there was a 22-year-old Toyota Cressida. Now, you don't even know what that is. They don't make Cressidas over here. They do there. And, he's, and he looked at that Cressida, and on the front bumper was this word. Can you cue the, the word? The Afrikaans word is tefriada. Tefriada. It's a word that means contentment. Satisfaction. And that young pastor said, here I was desiring to have a BMW. By the way, if you drive a BMW, it's so nothing wrong with it. Just let me drive it sometime. And he said, here was a man who was content in what he had. I looked at Lynn. Lynn looked at me. And in that service, we said, that's it. When you come to visit us in Nashville and you come into our kitchen, a South African artist has done tefrida and put it on our wall. And already we're able to share with our, all of our neighbors who, who say, what is a tefridi, a tefridi? And we're able to share with them our Ebenezer about how God has made us content. But church, would you let me be honest with you this morning? Do you know why God gives you an Ebenezer? You know why he gave it to Israel? Because we too quickly forget. That God is good, don't we? And we need to constantly be looking at it and be reminded. Though this is our Ebenezer, can I tell you this morning that we weren't always content? God called us many years ago to leave Roanoke, Alabama, where we met these people, and to go to Africa. And initially, 
we knew that God was speaking, but initially when I started thinking, I'm going to carry four boys on the other side of the ocean, I did not even know where Botswana was. I became fearful. And we went to Richmond, Virginia to our candidate con uh, consultation and Dr. Lewis Cobbs, there were about 12 couples in this circle. And he went around the room in that circle when we were in Richmond and said, uh, okay, Jim and, and Tina, you're going to Ecuador. Jeff and Lynn, you're going to Botswana, all the way around the room. And then he said, some of you in this room will never come back. Some of you may bury a child in a land that's not your land of birth. He then read a scripture and shared a devotion and church, listen to me. I never heard another word he said. I went back, to, we went back to our room that night. We went to bed and I did not sleep one second. And I wrestled with the Lord and I said, God, I know you've called me but I'm scared to death. I know that you cannot be calling me. So the next day I went to our uh, supervisor there, at the International Mission Board, and I said, let me tell you, I've always heard that when you're in the center of God's will, there's perfect peace and I don't have peace. And I think we just need to put a pause on all this. And they graciously prayed for, for us and we went home to Alabama and I convinced myself that we would be missionaries in Alabama. We would preach missions and we would send teams around the world. And God let us be to Frida content with that for a while. We then had a missionary come to our church for a world mission conference. And he shared about what God was doing in Lebanon he, uh, Pete Dunn, Brother Pete Dunn opened the work, Southern Baptist work in Lebanon. And we got home that night and Lynn and I were having and our boys our pineapple and cheese sandwich and Cheetos. We are kind of weird. Um, but as we were eating, Lynn looked across the table at me. She had not said a word in two years. But that night she said, Jeff, did God say something to you? And I said, no, he did not. And guess what kind of night's sleep I had again? <laughs> the next day, I invited Pete Dunn after church to come to our house, and I shared my heart with him. And I shared with him, I know God cannot really be calling me because there's no peace in my heart. And he listened to me very patiently and he said, what, what is it you want? And I said, if you'll just give me a sign. I was going to be a Gideon. Give me a sign, God, and I'll know. And he said, Jeff, did he give you a sign? Did he write it across the sky for you to come pastor this church? I said, well, not exactly. He said, but you demand one now. And I said, well, if, you, if he just did, that I wouldn't have any excuse. I, I would know. And I said, just pray for me, Pete. And Pete said, I'm not going to pray for you here. I'm going home. I'll pray for you there. You get on your face before God. 
You pray and fast for three days, and at the end of three days, you do what God tells you to do. If he says stay home, praise God. You know what he wants you to do. And I, we did that. And I was taking this boy here to school the next morning and turned on the radio and a Christian song was playing and it was answering every question I had. And within the next day or two, God gave me two more signs. He didn't have to give me a sign. But that's the good, good father we have. He knew I could not move beyond where I was. And after all was said and done, it was as if God was saying, okay, what are you going to do with it? And this is 27 years later. Uh, with knees shaking, we took four little boys on a plane and got off in Habaroni, Botswana. And as we began our ministry, the peace came. God is a good, good father. Then there was language learning. Have you ever studied a, a different language where you couldn't even ask where's the bathroom or how can I get a drink of water? Or where you're with your language teacher trying to show off? She's asked an elder of the church to come over and I'm practicing my very best Setswana. And I want to say to this man, do you have a wife? And I'm practice in my head what I'm going to say when it's my turn. And I say, which is not exactly the same thing. It is, would you not want to take my wife? <laughs> and as he choked on his tea and biscuit, I was reminded, oh God, I'll never be able to do this. And God said, you're right. You can't but I can through you. And then the years of serving among wonderful people, serving with a mixed race group in South Africa who during the apartheid years were pushed right out of the picture. They were told they were less than human and God called in and I to walk alongside of them and just to help them see that they are worthy and that God will use them. And we did that for a number of years. We thank God for what God does in being faithful to us. God always brings me back to my Tafrida because he knows I've got a short memory. Five months before we were to come home, we were beginning to pack bags. We were giving things to our pastors that we were not going to bring with us but leave behind. We were saying goodbyes. We were trying to get happy about leaving Africa. Uh, it, it's interesting in our fears, if we will surrender them to God, He will take our fears and make us a home. And we got to Africa and so fell in love with Africa. We weren't afraid of Africa anymore. What we became afraid of was coming home. We're learning our new country of birth after 25 years. It has changed. But more than that, I think we have changed. And just five months before coming home, we're trying to get excited, coming home to be with the children, our grandson. And in a routine annual physical, Lynn went to to have her mammogram. She was a little longer than normal. 
And when she came out, she shared that she had breast cancer. I had to look for the Tefrida because I couldn't really find it. And we began to pray to a good, good father. Our mission board said, we'll have you on a plane end of the week. Wherever we need to go in the United States, we'll take her. And we prayed and God said, you don't need to go there. Stay right here. We, I, have, I have doctors in South Africa just like I do in, in America. And God led us to a wonderful Christian uh, Afrikaner doctor, a, a member of the Dutch Reformed Church that told us from the beginning that his hands didn't belong to him. They were God's. The surgery was performed. Then had some radiation treatments. And we learned that we had caught the cancer very, very early in the stages. And the prognosis has been wonderful. We thank God for his faithfulness even during the difficult times. Pray for us as we try to find our place in America. As we try to get beyond what we all are hearing of the political mumbo jumbo that's on every page. And let me encourage you, don't despair. God has an Ebenezer for you. You need to be looking for it. He will give you to Freda. He will give me that in the midst of all of our challenges if we acknowledge Him as our God, if we will confess our sins and turn away from them and follow Him. He is ready to guide us. He's ready to take you in your, His arms and be everything and more than you could ever hope or imagine. Our kind and loving Heavenly Father, thank you this morning that our contentment is not based on our circumstances. Thank you, Father, that you're faithful and good in every experience of life. Thank you for the 25 years that you blessed us with in Southern Africa. Thank you for the opportunities you give now as we come home. May America once again become the home that we love as we meet more and more of your children like we meet here in Palmetto. Bless this sweet, dear church, God, as they are seeking to be Jesus in this community. Bless them. May they ever look for their Ebenezer and may they find you to be faithful in it all. And all of God's people said,